welcome to Risk Chats with Affirm. I'm your host, Paul Marshall. So today we're going over the 22 Affirm survey results, which uh, is done with GuideHouse, and Kate Silvis is here to give us the scoop, give us some details, a little further deep dive, and uh, we also have our co-host, Mr. Dan Featherly, joining us today, so new year, new things, and uh, it's always nice to look back, so without further ado, let's get to the show. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. All right, so here we are in 2023. We're refreshing, getting our Affirm podcast going again, and uh, new year, new things. So actually, first thing I want to do is introduce our new co-host, Mr. Dan Featherly. Dan, how you doing? Doing great, Paul. Excited to be here. Happy to be a co-host. Looking forward to learning a lot from you. All right, well, we'll see how much you can learn from me. I don't know about that, but either way, happy <laughs> to have you. Um, and, of course, I think another good way to start the year is to look back at the prior year a little bit. So with that, we have Kate. And, uh, Kate, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Paul. Dan, it's, it's nice to have you join the podcast, and we look forward to hearing from you over the rest of this year. Great. Thanks, Kate. Appreciate it. All right, Kate. Well, why don't you um, – we've had you on the podcast before, but why don't you just reintroduce yourself a little bit and tell us uh, what we're going to talk about today. Sure. Uh, hi, everyone. Kate Silvis, and I lead the Enterprise Risk Management Practice at GuideHouse Consulting. And today we are going to be talking about the Affirm GuideHouse Federal Enterprise Risk Management Survey. And GuideHouse has been uh, – co-developing this survey with a firm. Um, this is our eighth year, and I am excited to, to talk about some of the findings um, from this year for those of you who weren't able to attend uh, the Affirm Summit last year. All right. Awesome. Well, yeah, let's just start off. Maybe you can just kind of explain to us how does this survey work. Um, yeah, just let's just start with that. Sure. So the survey is sent to a firm members who are government employees. And we've also included uh, the AGA membership in the past. Uh, the survey is open to any federal employee um, and just federal employees, so not, uh, not any of the contractors that support ERM. We really just want to hear from the federal community. Uh, and we have the survey open for a month during the summer to gather responses uh, from the community. And then GuideHouse takes those responses, uh, we aggregate everything, run uh, analytics on the data, and then identify themes and observations. We do typically refrain from inferring on what the data means and just prevent the facts of the report. So I do appreciate the opportunity to come on the podcast and uh, give a little bit of my perspective and make some inferences on what the data means. Um, during the during the pandemic, we moved from a paper written report to a dashboard, and we plan on continuing to provide information on the survey in that dashboard report. But we do include a PDF so that people who like to look at the information kind of in that report format have the opportunity to. All right. And I'm assuming this is on our firm website, too. Folks can get to it. It is, and it's also um, on the GuideHouse website. So you can go to GuideHouse and just search 
search for Affirm survey uh, or get to it through the Affirm website. All right. Yeah, we'll put some links up and people can link it up, pull it up, read along as they're listening to the podcast. Um, so, so speaking of that, um, yeah, tell us a little bit about what's, you know, what's the layout of this? What, you know, what are the questions or the sections? Uh, how does the survey actually look? Sure. So the survey has multiple tabs and it uh, consists of seven different sections. The first section is an executive summary where we look at what really are the top 10 takeaways from everything we saw in the survey over the course of the year? Then we have a section on demographics. Who responded to the survey? Large agencies, small agencies, who does the ERM program report to? Size of the budget, um, whether or not uh, you have um, you know, a significant number of, of SES in your agency, whether or not ERM is included in those SES performance plans, those are all things that fall into the demographics category. Then we have characteristics of federal ERM programs. So, um, you know, do you have a risk appetite statement or a, a risk, uh, an, exec, an executive risk committee? Um, are you chartered? Those types of things fall into characteristics. Focus and priority of the ERM programs. What benefits are you trying to get? Uh, what do you plan on spending your time on in the upcoming year? What do you think would be helpful for you to spend time on to get the most out of ERM? That falls into focus and priorities. Then we have execution, performance, and culture. Whether or not your program is effective, are you getting the benefits that you want to get? Um, do you have the ability to look across the entire portfolio of risk? How well integrated is your ERM program with other processes? Uh, that all is in execution, performance, and culture. This year, we have a section that we called Emerging Risks. Uh, we replaced the section um, last year that was called Pandemic. So for two years, we asked questions about the pandemic. Uh, and this year, we moved towards looking to the future and what type of emerging risks uh, should agencies be thinking about and looking at. And then the final section are Mean Breakouts. Uh, and so we do take a cross-section of um, primarily the, um, the focus and priorities and execution, performance, and culture questions and look at um, those questions from a mean perspective, broken down across demographic categories to show you how different types of agencies answered those questions um, to see, you know, are there significant differences uh, and you can take a look at and drill down into, you know, what type of agency or what type of characteristics does your agency have and how are you performing against other um, similar type agencies, as well as different agencies that are kind of the exact opposite of, of who you are. Uh, all of the questions in the survey have remained con relatively consistent for the past eight years. We have added and deleted a few questions over time to reflect changes in the environment. This year, uh, we've added some additional questions to gain insight around risk appetite. Um, but based on questions that we got during the summit this year when presenting the survey results, next year, we are likely going to add more questions to gain insight around including um, 
or looking at various different uh, SCS. Um, so, for example, there were a lot of questions um, around, uh, you know, if we include this, if we include ERM in SCS performance plans, how does that change uh, the answers? And we just didn't have enough breakout on um, SES to be able to answer those questions. And so we'd be looking at the questions this year um, going into 2023 to see how we can get more information to the community to make different decisions um, or change some aspects of their program to get better results. Okay. And actually, yeah, what, what time of year do you guys usually put their survey out? Sure. So it's usually in the summer. Um, so we try to release around um, early June um, and leave it open uh, just around July 4th. Okay. And then you guys uh, typically at the uh, the summit is when you give out the uh, results, right? That's correct. All right. Cool. Well, Dan, I'm going to make you do some work. What You got any questions for us, Dan? <laughs> First, uh, looking at the report, Kate, great report. Really enjoyed reading it. When I was looking at the mean breakout section, took me back to my statistics 101 college class. So got a refresh in that. But my main question, Kate, is what are some of the key observations from the 2022 results that you saw? Sure. So I'll say that the first uh, key observation for me was a change in the ranking of risks that are believed to have the greatest impact on strategic objectives over the next three to five years. In every other survey um, prior to this year, the number one spot was taken up by cybersecurity and privacy risk. Uh, and that has been consistent uh, since we started asking this question. This year, that number one spot flipped. Um, it flipped from um, to human capital. So human capital is now the number one risk that is perceived to have the greatest impact looking out three to five years. Cybersecurity is still number two, um, but it was really interesting to me that um, that that spot flipped. Yeah, that's interesting to me. I mean, do you think the human capital moved up because of the pandemic? Because a lot of federal employees were retiring, or what's your kind of intake on why it moved up to the top spot? Sure, I think that it is a multitude of different things kind of coming together. So. If we look at just pure human capital, um, I think a large portion of the of federal employees are eligible to retire, and uh, and so that kind of number you know we've been talking about for several years uh, and kind of continues to continues to be there and grow, and then you look at the the potential employees that could come into federal service. Uh, and the the statistics and the research around how Gen Z and millennials like to work or want to work, and the percentage of those potential employees that want to work kind of traditionally, I would say, you know, for a corporation in an office, uh, are much smaller than prior generations. And so you have workforce that's getting ready to retire and you have a smaller number of people that are that are interested or willing to come in to do work um, like like we've been doing work for the federal government. Uh, and so I think from a pure human capital perspective, you have this um, you, you have this interesting potential demographic mix 
uh, and challenges in encouraging and exciting employees to want to come in. And then on the flip side, on the cyber side, we've been talking about cyber risk for you know, five years now, and agencies and the federal government as a whole have been putting plans in place, have been educating employees about cybersecurity risk, uh, have been changing the mitigations in place, have been spending money in order to keep our information and our infrastructure safe. And so when you look at, we've spent a lot of time on cyber risk and a lot of money and resources, plus these dynamics that are happening from a human capital perspective, it did make sense to me that the community would look at this and actually flip it and say, three to five years out, we are our greatest risk to meeting the strategy and objectives uh, and candidly the mission of our agencies is more at risk from human capital than cybersecurity. Yeah, and it doesn't sound like that risk is going to change much in the future. I'd expect it at number one, number two next year, frankly. Yeah, right. I think one of the things that is the most exciting to me about risk management is that when we have a risk that has that level of complexity to it, right, it has multiple different root causes, it has multiple levers that you can try and pull in order to reduce that risk, that if you take a um, if you take a creative approach to mitigating or accepting or you know pursuing some of this risk, you can change the profile. Uh, and so it'll be interesting to see, like cyber risk, do agencies put put focus um, on this human capital risk and really look at what are their components from from a root cause analysis perspective, uh, and what can they change? Um, to see, like cyber, it move down the list over time. Yeah, excellent. I mean, I think that's because Paul was asking me to share my Wi-Fi password with him, and I refused. So hopefully that mitigated some of that risk. That's right, exactly. <laughs> nice. So, yeah, let's keep going. So, I mean, HR, cyber, you know, cyber never, never a surprise. Um, yeah, what else did you guys find out this year? You know, one of the biggest changes from a percentage perspective, so it kind of pure statistical data, um, is that this year, 54% of respondents compared with 39% last year indicated that they have a defined risk appetite statement. And risk appetite has been one of the lowest, um, has had the lowest response rate since we started the survey. And to see that increase so much um, was really exciting to me. Um, you know, in a couple of the agencies that I've worked with, they've taken a, um, a, a different approach to risk appetite over this past year, really looking at their strategic objectives, their strategies that they're trying to employ, and asking the question, what am I willing to risk in order to be able to achieve this objective? And that has helped further conversations to say, I need to risk X in order to meet this objective. And it's the primary objective of the agency today because of the administration that we're in. And so I'm going to move resources from one part of the organization to another in order to meet that objective. And so therefore, I'm going to have to take more risk um, you know, in, in some of the places where I'm moving resources from to in order to meet those objectives. And that is really kind of the crux, I think, of enterprise risk management, which is 
how are we going to best use our resources in order to meet our, like to put in place our strategies and objectives. Uh, and so watching those conversations change, seeing it come through from a survey perspective was really exciting for me. Um, you when you talk about risk appetite, really integrating it into that strategy and decision-making that I talked about, we saw that increase as well. So it went from 9% last year to 18% this year. Uh, and so kind of across the risk appetite questions, uh, we've really seen an increase in adoption since this question was added in, uh, in 2017. And so that's a big move. Um, from a demographics perspective, respondents from organizations that had longer duration ERM programs were more likely to report having a risk appetite uh, rather than shorter duration programs. And again, this isn't very surprising to me because risk appetite, I would say, is one of the more challenging concepts to implement in an ERM program. And so once you have all of the foundational aspects in place, you, um, you have an understanding of what the agency risk profile is, organizations then start to look at what's the next step that I can take in ERM and risk appetite is often that next step. And so this doesn't really surprise me from a, uh, from a statistics perspective. Uh, in addition, one of those demographic categories uh, that has more risk appetite than less uh, are programs that are led by a chief risk officer. So they are more likely to have uh, a risk appetite statement um, than organizations that don't have a CRO. Um, we, we added a question this year asking whether or not agency risk appetite statements uh, have been updated within the last three years. And for those that have a risk appetite statement, nine out of 10 respondents said, yes, they have updated their risk appetite statement in the last three years. Uh, so we just, we added, we're adding some questions to get more insight uh, into some of these areas, um, particularly risk appetite, as I mentioned next year, looking at kind of SES performance plans. So Kate, it sounds to me kind of the federal ERM as it matures and some of these places start creating these risk appetite statements, that the next step of their evolution will be then to tie that into their budget formulation process. Is that kind of your take as well? So uh, I would, I would talk about it in two ways. I think kind of the next, you know, the next iteration and um, you know, where, where I know agencies are looking is both strategy, strategic planning, as well as budgetary processes. Um, I kind of look at the three of these together. So enterprise risk management integrated with strategy um, and in the federal government with budget. Um, and we did see some changes uh, around integration uh, with other execution processes or other types of processes that are in place uh, this year. So last year, we saw um, the mean scores around the integration of ERM with these processes um, fall back a little. I wasn't surprised by that because most organizations were still really dealing with, um, with the pandemic and how that affected the way in which they delivered their programs. And so wasn't surprising to me to see. And so then a corollary was it wasn't surprising to me to see this year that those uh, mean scores kind of came back to where they were the year before the pandemic. 
Um, and so all four questions that we asked about integration moved in an upward direction. So the means, the mean responses uh, increased in each one of these. Um, and we ask, we ask about four processes um, and uh, those four processes are integration with management internal control, integration with strategic planning, integration with execution processes, and integration with budgetary processes. Um, and this year, that integration with budgetary processes that you asked about um, moved up in mean score um, to tie with execution. So we don't have a one to four, we have a one to three with a tie for the third place. Um, but oftentimes, that connection between how do I think about ERM and the budget? What are the components that I should be thinking about? How do I change my budget process in order to include some of these risks? Um, that can be a challenge. And so partnering with um, partnering with the CFO organization, or if you sit within the CFO organization, partnering with the team that's focused on the budget, to talk about how do we ask our mission partners or our you know, business partners to identify which part of the budget will help them to reduce risk, either for their own programs or enterprise risk if you have an enterprise risk profile, um, so that when senior leadership um, looks at the budget request, they can really articulate how some of the budget is you know, being put in place in order to address those key risks of the organization. Um, you know, there are kind of legislative requirements and program requirements that require budget uh, in order to run so that we can meet the meet the needs and the the mission of the agency. But there are some additional, you know, investment money. I call it investment money because it's investing in either infrastructure or people or process uh, in order to um, further the mission or address risks that we have in programs that really needs to be considered as part of the budget process and, um, you know, new uh, new components being put in place around that budget request or, um, you know, mid-year funds um, that become available. How do you spend that? Uh, and so that is an area that I know um, a lot of organizations are looking to improve. Fantastic. And so you mentioned that integration with management internal control programs, that was ranked number one in the responses. So my question for you there is, when I think of uh, internal controls, right, I think of uh, internal controls over financial reporting, internal controls over operations. And I'm curious, and I know you didn't break it out in the question, but I'm curious as to your take, since a lot of these respondents most likely are sitting in the CFO shop, I'm thinking they may take it from the point of view of ICAFER, right, over financial reporting. But what's your take on that? Do you think they were looking at it from a true ERM perspective? Do you think they have that visibility? Or what's your thoughts there? So... I do think whenever we say internal control in the federal environment that people think of ICAFR. Um, you know, one of the interesting things that OMB did with A123 was adding an appendix around reporting, um, you know, reporting full stop, both internal and external reporting. And that sort of forces you to think about those operational controls um, around reports that you use internally to make decisions and particularly decisions around risk where those reports are actually not financial in nature. 
So how, um, how are you gathering the data? How are you using the data? How are you analyzing the data? How are you um, reporting the data, understanding that stakeholder grouping uh, in order to you know, put the right internal controls um, in place around it? <clears throat> uh, and I'm not sure that when we say internal controls yet, that we think about that totality um, of, of controls. You know, we, we do ask questions um, around entity level controls as we're looking at control programs, particularly for FIMFIA and when we're following the Green Book. Um, but it does still have that kind of feel and tendency to be focused on the financial reporting controls rather than all controls. Um, I think the other thing about enterprise risk management that when we're looking at mitigating enterprise risk, I don't always see a control per se as the response to an enterprise risk. A lot of times the responses to enterprise risks are programs uh, or they are governance structures. Um, and so it's not, you know, I'm putting a reconciliation in place or, um, you know, I am putting an approval in place. Um, you know, sometimes it's policy, um, which can be considered an internal control, but it's not kind of that typical financial reporting control. So I'm not sure that there really is that connection, um, you know, in thought process around what internal control means. Does that answer yeah. your question? That answered it beautifully. And I, I, I see it kind of the same way. I think still people think internal controls, they automatically think financial reporting. And I think that's part of the whole evolution of ERM within federal. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, let's see. The, the other piece that I, I wanted to talk about from a change uh, or from a difference uh, in, in this year versus last year was really some, some thoughts and insight around the emerging risk question that we asked. Um, so we did remove the pandemic-related questions, and we added two new questions on emerging risk. And of the respondents, 79% believe that technology risk will generate significant uncertainty to their agency within the next three years. And this was the most frequently selected risk category, followed by economic risk. Um, it, I was, again, not surprised. Um, just having uh, worked at multiple different agencies uh, and the challenge around legacy infrastructure, um, you know, how do you replace legacy infrastructure? How do you build onto legacy infrastructure with all of the new technologies um, that are now coming into play that can really help agencies do their jobs more efficiently, meet their mission more effectively? Um, and how do you do all of that in a legacy IT environment uh, without the entire system breaking? Uh, and so that was, um, you know, that wasn't a surprise to me to see that number or to see it listed as number one. I was a little surprised that it was almost 80% of respondents that thought that that was the number one emerging risk. Um, the uh, the, the difference between, from a demographic perspective, uh, respondents from small agencies were more likely to select technology risk as their number one uh, than large agencies. 
and respondents with newer ERM programs were also more likely to select technology than organizations that had longer duration ERM programs. So that was the technology section. You know, we, we talked about human capital risk earlier, and as it relates to emerging risks, we had a lot of respondents that indicated that workforce-related risks should be added to their risk profile. Um, citing retention, 52% of respondents thought retention should be added to their risk profile, and employee morale and engagement that had 44% of respondents uh, adding, um, wanting to add that to their risk profile. Other top selections um, were cybersecurity failures, so not the cybersecurity risk per se, but those specific events and failures. And 47% of respondents had that. Um, then we had supply chain failures. 44% of respondents um, wanted to include that in their profile. Uh, and then um, the, next, uh, the next item on the list was public infrastructure failure. And that was 30%. Um, and I will say that we, um, we solicited responses to this survey before the um, the infrastructure bill was passed. So um, we'll see whether or not that shows up on the emerging risk list next year. Um, the, uh, there were some additional items that didn't reach the list, but that I saw were interesting other responses. Um, so other responses from our risk community around emerging risks were inflation, um, safety of facilities and personnel, and reputational risks such as extreme politicization and misinformation and disinformation. So, um, you know, I thought that those last two were really interesting. We have never, we haven't seen that come up in discussion before. Um, and so having that added to a list of potential emerging risks was interesting to me. Um, the last category that I wanted to talk to you, talk about from a change perspective was around technology. And this year we saw a, um, a market increase um, from four to 12% of respondents that are using a GRC tool. Um, this never kind of you know, came up in prior years. It was always 4% or less. Uh, and so to move to 12% was, um, was a large increase. And so, um, you know, organizations are moving from Excel and SharePoint uh, to GRC tools. Um, you know, outside of outside of the GRC tools, Excel and SharePoint are the primary uh, tools that are used to manage ERM. Um, but looking at organizations, um, to, you know, taking that taking that next step into technology. Well, that's good to hear. At least there is a little bit of increase there. Uh, 12% is definitely better than four. So that's good to hear. It is. Yeah. And, you know, Excel can't get away from Excel. Everybody loves Excel, but hey, you know, it's good what it's, it's good for what it is. But, uh, you know, the fat finger is always my concern on that. Um, yep. Well, so I think we have a one more question for you today and then we can maybe give us some final thoughts as we're wrapping it up. But, um, as far as the survey, you know, just curious, like you've been doing this for eight years, as you said, I think you said eight years. So what are some things that, some themes that, you know, just keep coming up year to year? Just curious what you saw as far as trends and themes like that. Sure. 
The biggest one for me is that we we have a a grouping of risks where the perception of that risk doesn't match with how we are addressing that risk. Um, in each of these cases, the perception of the risk is lower than the amount of resources that we're putting to address the risk. Um, and some of those categories are compliance, fraud, reporting. If you think about those, um, you know, they often fall into the category of, um, you know, of financial reporting. So they have aspects of financial reporting to them. And so, you know, the the requirements from A123 uh, and and OMB and Green Book over time, we spent a lot of time on these controls. Um, but have we over-controlled? And I think it's worthwhile for agencies to look at these risks um, and look at their risk appetite and say, do we have a mismatch? Like, is there a way for us to, um, to look at these risk types, maybe change our processes, um, change some of the controls, uh, still, have, uh, or still have that risk fall within our risk appetite, but then be able to use some of our resources um, you know, for mission-focused processes um, or different processes uh, and still potentially have the, like, a very similar risk profile. And so this has come up every year. Really, the same five categories come up, business continuity, uh, compliance, fraud, reporting, financial risk. Um, and so you know, I'll be interested to see whether or not, um, you know, anyone does take a look at that and maybe changes uh, changes their approach um, to to mitigating these risks. Um, the other one that comes up every year is a request for training, and that uh, training and awareness always tops the list uh, around what could ERM programs focus on over the next 12 months. And I think what that means to me is that we aren't addressing the needs of the community um, as well as we could. Uh, and so I think, you know, getting information about what people would like to be trained on, um, you know, would be helpful, uh, I think, for a firm, for contractors, um, you know, to be able to provide that into the marketplace. Uh, and so I think if you're listening to the podcast and you think your agency doesn't do a great job of training, um, you know, I, I would recommend reaching out to a firm and um, you know, suggesting some things that you would like to be trained on uh, in order to be able to improve your capabilities uh, and kind of the, the overall ERM capabilities of the community. And so those are two of the things for me that keep showing up um, where I think we have opportunities um, to, to kind of address them to run ERM more efficiently and effectively. Okay, well, this has been a great uh, review of this, of a little deep dive into the uh, into the results, and uh, we really appreciate you coming on here to give us your perspective once again. And uh, I guess just any final thoughts before we sign off here? Um, I think that in thinking about agency mission, strategy, and objectives from an enterprise perspective, can really enhance the ability of agencies to deliver on their missions to the public in an efficient and effective way. And this community of people who have been looking at ERM and risk management, um, you, you can see the maturation of 
our community over time through the results of the ERM survey, and that we are you know, starting to get into that next iteration of maturity and how do we use data? Um, how do we uh, how do we really look at some of these really challenging uh, emerging risks? in order to be able to help agencies meet their mission and effectively deliver to taxpayers um, on the mission. And I'm excited to be a part of that. Um, and I would just kind of leave everyone um, who's listening just with one final thought. If you haven't read the survey, um, you know, please go out to the Affirm website or the Guidehouse website and take a look at the results. Um, and see kind of how, where you see yourself and your agency in that uh, and think about what the next steps are for you to build your culture capabilities and practices. All right. Well, with that, we'll close it out. So Kate, Dan, thanks again. Great podcast and uh, appreciate it. And we'll have the links up on the site and hopefully hear from you all again soon. I know Dan will be here next time, but Kate, we'll have to catch you back on, on the next on the next one. So thanks again. Thanks, Sounds Kate. good. Thanks, everyone. All right, bye That's the show. Thanks for tuning in. Affirm.org is where you go. Going to get our little risk chats going again this year. We have a whole bunch of exciting guests lined up for 2023. Got our new co-host, Mr. Dan, who's going to be helping us out. It's going to be fun. So look forward to a year full of podcasts. But until that next time, this is your host, Paul Marshall, signing off for Risk Chats with a Firm.